in the movie Goodfellas, if you recall, there was a scene where Bobby Vinton was singing at a nightclub. So I have my Bobby Vinton mic here, if you see, and I'll do a little. She wore blue velvet, Dan Nathan. See, I did my Bobby Vinton for you. Now, people are probably tuning out in droves. Tough shit, because we're here. It's 1 o'clock. It's Monday. It's May 9th. I'm Guy Adami, not Bobby Vinton. Joined by Dan Nathan in just a few minutes, I promise you, Carter Braxton Worth, who has been right as rain, will be joining us. Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow not bobby vinton again and we are powered by open exchange check them out dan at open exchange tv on the twitter oh my goodness how are you dan nathan <laughs> i'm doing okay guy Donnie. you like it's, my bobby vinton no. <clears throat> i really did i thought you were going to do the intro to reservoir dogs because you felt like you had your radio voice going but you are more of a wfan radio guy there here's the deal man like you're feeling a little funky. Things are a little weird out there. And I know that, you know, you use this expression all the time. And I think it's really important, you know, when you talk about like, you know, big sell-offs or sustained sell-offs and the people use the term panic, right? And, you know, you often say, well, why is it only panic when the market's selling off? And if you looked at Wednesday afternoon after the Fed, their meeting, I mean, they came out with their rate decision at two o'clock, 2.30 was the presser. 75 basis points was off the table at what, 2.36 or something like that and the market rips, right? And closes up 3% in the S&P, 4% in the NASDAQ. And you made the point, that felt like a panic. And the quick reversal guy on Thursday and the follow-through into Friday and the follow-through in today, that just feels orderly, doesn't it, guy? Feels pretty orderly to me. And now at least fundamentals seemingly are de rigueur, as the French say. And, you know, people, again, they associate the word panic with selling We've been conditioned to do that. Yeah. But I would submit the most panic we've seen literally over the last three or four months has been to the upside because these sell-offs don't feel at all panic to me. Now, you'll say, what are you talking about? Today feels like panic. No, it doesn't. doesn't feel panic at all. It feels pretty orderly. But we'll talk to Carter Worth about that. You know, one of the things that obviously Dan's been top of mind, obviously, for a lot of reasons, and I think this started back in November, is inflation. And finally, the gentlemen that make up, mostly gentlemen that make up the Federal Reserve finally threw in the towel. And one of those more dovish people, and quite frankly, one of the guys that's really just been, I don't even know what the word is. I, I want The arrogance associated with him has been infuriating. Well, he's finally seems to have come to some sense of reality. And that would be, of course, Neil, not N-E-I-L or N-E-A-L, but Neil with two E's, good for him, Cash Carry from Minneapolis. And he's saying, He's confident inflation come down, but not without sustaining some pain. Oh, really? Thanks for all your help there, Neil. What are your thoughts here, Dan? Because now everybody's top of mind inflation stuff. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, there was a lot of people and I was one of those people in the camp, but I'm not a central banker. I'm not a economist either. I really thought that we would see, you know, some of the inflation fears peak at some point late last year. I think that they were probably on their way to doing it. Guy, I know that you would probably say that the, you know, that the readings that we look to don't really measure the proper inflation here. But a lot of like longtime bulls or doves, you know, thought it was going to be transitory. Well, clearly, given the situation in Eastern Europe, 
it's just made worse all of those issues that we've had with supply chains that we've had with industrial commodities and access to them and the whole supply demand dynamics. And so now we have a whole heck of a lot of uncertainty about that. I don't think that's much of a debate. But if you're also a bull now, you're also suggesting that, you know, with the market down the way it is, it's giving you a little color to say, oh, well, maybe we've just hit peak inflation. And that would be the thing that causes the Fed to kind of take their foot off the pedal here. You know, again, it's going to happen, Guy. I think we could all agree it's going to come in at some point. But I think that that's the debate right now is those prior transitory folks and those prior doves um, are saying, we got to hit it hard. We're going to take some pain, as Kaskari is saying. You know, to me, I guess the only hope for those people is that we do see things kind of moderate. We don't see a global recession and we don't see a huge asset bubble that just deflates because you've been talking about it for weeks now. The negative wealth effect that would come with that could actually be the thing that helps put us in a recession also. Well, I mean, at a certain point, it becomes self-fulfilling. And again, right. I don't know why people get so exercised about recession. I mean, you might be in one right now for all we know. Does it yeah. really matter? It doesn't really change anybody's lives. But, you know, when it's then announced and when it becomes official, for whatever reason, behavior starts to change. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But that's neither here nor there. And quite frankly, I don't think, and I think you would agree with this, as would Carter, I don't think that's a great indicator as what's going to happen in the market. If we are in recession, going into recession, I don't think it makes a difference. I've said for a while, and I actually believe this, I think a market sell-off actually can cause a recession, not vice versa. In terms of peak inflation, yeah, maybe we peaked in terms of that last CPI print we saw, but I've said this for a while. Peak yeah. starts with PE, so does pesky and persistent, and I think both are going to be around for a while. And he's right. Crash Curry is right. We can get inflation back down to 2%. You know what? It's going to take a lot of work to get it there, and there's going to be a lot of pain associated with that. Um, if they want it bad enough. And by the way, again, I'll say this for the thousandth time. These are the same geniuses that we're praying for, wishing for, hoping for inflation for months, if not years prior. So we'll see. One of the things that seems to be working in their favor, at least today, Dan, is the energy market. You know, I looked at the OIH earlier today. It was down 18 handles, which is not an insignificant move. Here's a crude chart we got to take a look at because, again, we broke through that pennant formation to the upside. What appears to be happening, and I'm sure Carter will have some thoughts on this as well, we're doing what we call a back and fill, back to the uptrend line. That probably gets us down to $100-ish in WTI, and that's because it's a round number. It just happens to be the level on the chart. You thought this was going to happen for a while. What are your thoughts here in crude? And is it a good thing or a bad thing that crude's coming in today? Yeah, I guess it depends, right? If it becomes part of a story about a global recession, that would be kind of bad here. But I think if it could figure out, I mean, really what the Fed should try to be figuring out, or not the Fed in particular, but I think the global economy is what's a soft landing for some of these commodities like this? Because to your point, Guy, if we were to have some sort of precipitous move, like let's say back to that 200-day or maybe even as low as 80, you know, we might start having global growth concerns. And I'll just say this, that hold that uptrend, it probably looks like that's the trade to keep playing for for higher highs. I know that's your kind of take here. But one of the things I thought was really interesting is just how well that energy stocks you know, have acted. If you look at the XLE, the ETF that tracks the major integrateds, we know Chevron and Exxon make up maybe 40% of that there. And look at that thing on a five-year or excuse me, on a two-year basis here. It had that huge breakout, right? And it's just kind of been fairly parabolic for most of this year, going the opposite way of the S&P 500. And on a relative basis to where crude is off of its highs, it trades pretty well. The only thing I'll just say is look at it on a five-year guy. And do we have like a major, major major double top forming. So that relationship, I think, is kind of important. 
Well, let's take a look at that because I think you're 100% right. In my opinion, what happened here in terms of the XLE, in terms of the underlying stocks that mirror the commodity, for the longest time, the stock investors didn't believe the commodity move. Now the commodity move has sort of proved itself, yeah, obviously fluctuating and vacillating around this 105 to 100 level. But these levels are strong enough. I mean, if crude were just flatline now for the next six months, I would submit these stocks that can continue to go higher. Now, you bring up a great point. We're at levels we last saw, I think, in the fall of 2018, flirting with, you know, if we fail here, Dan, is it a major double top? I think you would say yes. I think Carter would agree. And we could absolutely do a back and fill in this thing into the high 60s. So the percentage moves we're seeing are extraordinary. And there's no reason to believe that the OIH is in the midst of one of those moves to the downside the XLE couldn't follow. Yeah, you just mentioned it. I mean, down 18 handles today, that's kind of a big move there. And again, you know, this one seems a little weaker on a relative basis to the major integrateds. That might make some sense when you think about how much more leveraged some of those names are in the OAH. And I think it's important to go back and remember back in 2015 and 16, Guy, when crude oil was getting demolished, I think it closed down at some point in early 16, 65% or so from its highs. And there was a lot of global growth concerns back then. Some of these oil service names looked like they were going out of business, right? And there was really, there was concern about credit spreads there in the space. That doesn't seem to be the concern right now at all. These companies are doing very, very well. And you've made the case on the numerous occasions of late that these companies are better run and they're leaner. So all good there. Let's take a little pause. You and I have been kind of calm coming into this. I mean, I, I think, listen, you and I, we've been doing this a long time and we've seen these periods before and we, we know what it's like when everyone's on the same side of the boat or they finally come around to it. That's kind of where we are right now. You and I, and we, Carter, we've been talking about a lot of the things we thought were going to play out over the course of this year, and they're finally starting to happen. But the epicenter for this is really in the NASDAQ. And this is the place where, you know, last Wednesday, we threw up a slide of a bunch of names that were already down a whole heck of a lot in the year or from their 52-week highs, the SaaS names that had serious, serious market caps that were trading at multiples of sales of over 20 all of those stocks from that slide on last Wednesday, Guy, are down more than 20% from their closing highs on Wednesday, which is really crazy. So it just shows you that investors are really kind of looking for some of these things that just don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. If you look at the NASDAQ 100 here, we've been preaching for a very long time that the five, six top names make up 40, 45% of the weight of this index of 100 stocks. And here we are, you know, the NASDAQ is down close to the NASDAQ 100, 25% from those all-time highs in November. And I got to tell you, man, there looks like to be a really big air pocket going back to that September low of 2020 or so. And I know that's taking out a lot of performance. But what's your take on this chart right here? Because this thing does not look particularly great. And it looks like and we're going to hit Apple and Microsoft in a second. They look like they're finally joining the party. Well, I mean, let's talk about this. We had said for the longest time, and if you watch Market Call, you know, we've been pretty consistent. I think if nothing else, we're consistent. It's easy to blow hot and cold depending on what the market's doing on any given day. And I know a lot of people out there feed or enjoy people with their proprietary platforms and what have you and their geniuses, I'm sure. I am not. But I'll say this. You know, we had talked about, the, in this case, 150-day moving average being effectively a trend line. And it, for every reason, and I think we voiced it pretty well, that trend line broke in terms of the move earlier this year. And we said it made a lot of sense. The Fed's in play. We explained why we thought the Nasdaq would fall. It did. Got down to that 13,000 level of support, which we had <coughs> driven a horizontal line months ago and said, you're probably going to see a bounce. Well, 
what happened? We bounced right back to the 150-day, which is now sloping lower, failed there, and now we're testing these levels again. To your point about an air pocket, absolutely. Now, people say, what'll get us here? Well, Amazon obviously has given it up. The one that's going to get us here is probably going to come in the form of Apple. Apple traded down to the low 150s. You mentioned we'll talk about it. But, you know, I still think, and we'll explain why, 137 is in the cards. And 137 in Apple probably gets you down to that danger zone in the NASDAQ, Dan. And you look at this uptrend line, yeah, it's intact. But I would submit, you know, you go back to the levels we saw in October, I think, of 2021, that 137 level-ish. And we, that's where we should trade down to. That's where we should bounce from. Yeah. And, you know, again, we sound like a broken record here. But to me, as long as I've been doing this, when you see correlations as high as they are right now, especially in the NASDAQ, there's no reason why this stock, the largest stock in the market where estimates have not budged yet and analysts are still expecting high single digits EPS growth year over year. The stock trades nearly 25 times earnings. That's just really expensive. It's expensive to its market, to the market. It's expensive to itself. And sooner or later, I just don't think we have capitulation in the market until this thing has a meaningful correction, maybe back to like 20 times or something like that. So, you know, that even gets you lower guy than your level. That chart is a bit of a mess. And the other one is Microsoft, the second largest market cap in the market. This one is down a bit more on the year than Apple. It's down about 19% or so. And this thing looks like a horrible head and shoulders top right here. And, you know, I'm not, I don't have the skill set that Carter does by any means, but, you know, some of those measured moves, some of the stuff that brings this stock, you know, well below 250. I mean, like well below it. And again, this stock is trading cheap to or expensive to its history, expensive to the market. And it just seems to be a bit of risk here. And listen, I think it's important to remember, Guy, both of these companies put up really good quarters and they gave good enough guidance where these stocks really didn't come in much. If, if anything, they rallied a little bit their initial reaction. It was just everything else in the NASDAQ was basically shoot first, ask questions later during earnings season. And if you think about the amount of ETFs that these stocks are in, so if you ever see selling, you know, significant selling, if that passive investing becomes active, and people start fleeing from it. That's what helped these stocks for so many years to the upside. The fact that this passive money flow came in, obviously so many of these names are in so many of those ETFs. Well, when that reverses, it doesn't matter what the fundamentals are, that passive money becomes active. It ain't going to be active on the way up. And that's something we said for a while. In terms of this 260 level, you drew the line. We talked about it on Fast Money, I think on Thursday night. I said, you know, your entry level you know, it's probably around the 260 level for Microsoft. If you've been waiting on the sidelines for a long time, that's probably the first stop. But to your point, Dan, in terms of valuation, the valuations begin to matter. Microsoft won't be impervious to that either. And then you could have a move to your point. Probably we're going to start talking about 225 being the next yeah. level, give or take. Yeah, no doubt. One last one before Carter comes in here, and I'd love to get his take on all the stuff that we just talked about with the NASDAQ. Look at NVIDIA here. And this is a company that obviously was a huge outperformer, a semiconductor stock that seemed to be in all of the right places, taking massive market share from all of their competitors over the last five years in data center and crypto. And I mean, AI, and the list goes on and on and on, right? So we, we all know the story here. And I think that there was a lot of investors who making the case that this is a software company that deserved the kind of multiple to sales it was trading at. Well, it's still trading at 12 
12 and a half times. It's down, I think, at least, well, it's down almost 40% from its all-time highs here. It's down 40% or so on the year. And this thing has more room to go. I mean, there's no reason why this should not correct to something under 10 times sales or so. And again, I think what's important here is that this has been a huge sentiment leader. You look at that move from the stock just last year and you know a year ago this time and it you know doubled in a short it looked like it was going to be a trillion dollar market cap company well here we are it's nearly cut in half what's your take on this one guy no i mean why not right i mean when people start naming dogs after stocks you know we're in for probably better for a rough ride and that obviously happened last year and now we're seeing it you know the sun also sets and again when valuations become a concern when the people start focusing on valuations and say wait a second even with the move lower that you just highlighted, you're talking about a stock that's still probably trading north of 12 times revenue. I mean, I don't know what the right number is, and I think that's what the market is struggling with right now. What is the right metric in a stock that has growth, but now we're in a higher interest rate environment, and potentially that growth is starting to abate a bit? And, you know, the level you drew to this 150 level, i got to tell you something, makes sense for a lot of reasons. And then you had effectively done an entire round turn of this move we've basically enjoyed for the last year or so. So I think it makes a lot of sense and I don't think it's over yet. All right. Well, listen, speaking of being over, I wonder if this this move in the 10 years over, it touched 3.2% today. It sold off 3.069 as we yeah, speak by right the way, now. That makes perfect sense, right? Like 15 basis point moves in our bond market. <laughs> I, in, in I said that just to get you tuned up a little bit. All right. Neil Cat, don't worry, folks. Everybody don't worry about a thing because Neil yeah. Kashkari's on. He's, he's, he's got everything in, well in control. All right. All right. Fair Jim. enough. All right. Let's bring That's him in. A See joke. It's a let's, I, joke. I know you're dialed up. All right. Carter Braxton Worth. Carter from Worth Charting. Man, our man. our friend. Guy was so dialed up, he was getting into the camera like that. That's <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was. How, how are you, man? I, we feel I'm like good. we, we have. Well, it's <laughs> we're, we're a bit subdued because this is all. I mean, listen, we take no pleasure in this. And I, I know you don't either. That's, um, that's, and, and you put a note out to, I think, both your institutional and your retail tell clients overnight, you know, suggesting just sell. Give us your take on that. It was a pretty simple note. I enjoyed it. It was sell in, in 14 different languages. Well, Is that what was, you did? Yeah, that was out to the social clients, the uh, 44 languages, whether it was Dutch or French, German, Spanish. Yeah. But what's interesting, of course, is that about a quarter of them all begin with the letter V. You know, in Spanish, it's Vondere or Italian, it's Vondere, right? Or even Afrikaner, it's Veracoup. The point being that it all stems from the Latin root vendere, right? In Latin is the Romance language. But either way, I was trying to be emphatic by being a bit overdone. Sell in this language, sell in that language, sell this, sell it all. So I don't know how else I could. But Carter, you've been saying this for weeks now, for weeks on end. You've called a couple really nice bounces, and there have been some really epic bounces. That bounce off the mid-March low to to the late, you know, a few weeks. It was like what, 10, 12% or something like that. You called that. You said sell it then. So you're just a seller of rallies. But like the question I have for you is how do investors or how do people watching this who are not institutional clients, how do they know whether to press a short right now? Because over the last three or four days, it's been fairly orderly, but aggressive selling. And some of these stocks that we've just talked about have had huge moves. How do you know to sell when something's down 10 or 20% and the sentiment is really bad all around it? Well, the truth is you don't. There are all sorts of attempts at trying to figure out what an oversold condition is. And people use oscillators, as we know, and there's some 40 or 50 of those on depending on the software program you have. I think the, the, the problem or the biggest problem for the market is that we did have that March bounce. 
so that by going up 15, 16% or more in certain stocks or the indexes themselves, the NASDAQ, it took a lot of capital put into the market to cause that bounce. Dip buyers or people thinking, okay, I've got to get in motion here, who didn't necessarily do it on day one or day four, did it more like on day nine or 10, which is to say pretty close to where it stopped. And so if you did it a little bit late, five, seven, eight sessions late, and then you have a few sessions of gains and it starts to unwind, as you saw there, hit the 150 moving average, the capital, the money, the buying pressure that it took to push it up starts to reverse itself because it says, my God, the bounce is not lasting. I've done this too late. I got to get out. And so the very capital, the money committed that pushed it higher becomes an accelerant on the way out, meaning reverse, reverse. And then, of course, there's this. There's all the capital that's yet to even sell. It's amazing. Slower moving. And I'm not saying the pejorative way, longer holding, long-term players say, I'm not that worried. I'm not worried. But every day when things get worse, Microsoft starts to drop 20 and 22. You're having new sellers join the market. So people who put their money in for the bounce, reversing, plus every day incremental new sellers backing away from X. There's also that thought that, you know, people will convince themselves, well, I'm long the stock from X, so I'm still okay. Well, that's I've said this for a while, and Karen Feinerman agrees, I think. When you don't sell something on any close, you've effectively wanted or you're buying the stock wherever it closes. So that's where you're happy owning the stock. So it's not buy, sell, or hold. It's buy or hold. So don't convince yourself because you bought something four years ago that you're still okay. Effectively, every day you don't sell is a day that you've decided to effectively buy it. But that's neither here nor there. Carter, you heard our take on the NASDAQ. We said, you know, we bounced right back to that 150-day moving average. It's sloping lower. We failed there. We think it takes out this next level of support. Quickly, you heard Dan and I wax poetic. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I have to think lower in the sense that some of the most widely owned, and you guys cited this, widely owned equities that are both individually owned and as a part of ETFs, people haven't really abandoned them. And so big names, Apple, Tesla, Microsoft, they're down, but not down what they can be when you look at the likes of Netflix, Facebook, and so forth. And so forth. Let's talk about Tesla because we have a question from Paul, and he knows that you mentioned the generals are the last to go. It looks like <coughs> Tesla's giving it up a little bit here. His point was that Apple's really the only one left standing. What are your thoughts on Tesla right up at this uptrend line? I think I know what you're going to say, but sort of talk to us about Tesla and then subsequently some of these other names. Right. So uh, here, too, a widely owned and at one point not institutionally owned, more so now, but point being very much a part of the hopes and dreams of the public, if you will. And Tesla is now down to trend or very close. I think we have a chart here. We both got an arithmetic and a log. So arithmetic, a very well-defined trend line, and we're down to it basically right now with today's incremental weakness. Now, if you flip this to log, what you'll see is that we're already breaking trend. And that's kind of the problem. The stock, while down a lot on a percentage base from its peak, it's a high beta, high stakes, high valuation, a love-hate kind of thing. And I think there's downside risk still. It's funny, Carter, you know, when you look at this thing, and this was a trillion dollar market cap company a week ago, right? And, you know, there was only, what, five of those. And for some reason, I mean, investors, because they're just very enamored with what's going on here, are willing to justify, it was trading 11 times sales. This is an an auto company that makes up 90% of the global market cap of the auto market, and, you know, a few percentage points 
tops of the market share here. So, you know, we're in your camp here. This is going to be the one. I mean, it's obviously going to be Apple and Tesla. And, you know, I'm not so sure once they go down, this thing will be down 50%. At some point, it's down 35% from its all-time highs. I'm not sure it comes right back up, you know. And we were talking about some of your thoughts on selling. I mean, listen, we break some of these key technical levels. And to Guy's point, if we see the fundamentals kind of follow suit for whatever reason, that means that they stay down. They might stay volatile, you know, in, in a range or something like that. But the idea of them marching the way Apple did from 150 back to 180, that move, those two, three weeks in March, just seems less likely the more damage that's done to the broader market. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I would maybe summarize as momentum is a very powerful force documented both in the natural world and in the market. And just as things can overshoot to the upside, we see it all the time, momentum is intact, bullish momentum. Bearish momentum and selling pressure is the exact equal and opposite force. Yeah. And so by all accounts, this has not really had the real capitulatory crashing abandonment that you've seen in other sort of high-flying, high-valuation stocks. Cold One thing stocks. that yeah. momentum has been important with, obviously, is crypto. You, you, you could not have been more right with this one as well. Let's take a look at Bitcoin here, Carter, because I saw over the weekend your work suggested sub-30,000. Well, talk to us about Bitcoin, because once again, you're proven to be uh, prescient. Uh, you're very kind to remember the good ones. I've got my duds, as we all do. But Bitcoin, Friday night, Saturday morning, I was like, this is precarious here. Treadline was in effect, and we have a chart. And so uh, sent out a, a communique, if you will, an email blast, however you want to call it, to or charting subscribers saying, I, I think uh, we're going to quick move down to 30,000. And so it's underway. One thing that comes up, of course, is Ethereum any different? No, they're, they're, they trade in sync. And so Ethereum, Bitcoin, lower. You did some work yeah. on these charts as well, though, when you do our little toggle, toggle, toggle. So walk us through, because I love this is when the magic happens, CBW. Well, that's right. All right. So nothing there, right? Just the chart. And now let's put some lines on. So plain chart, and then let's converging trend lines. So what that represents, right, is a standoff that's between bears and bulls, and then the resolution. We are breaking below that ascending trend line that is held and to the penny, to the penny, to the penny. And so where might we go if we flip to the next one? The downside risk is right there to the 28, 29,000. And that, of course, can happen very, very quickly. And it's also noted, of course, that Bitcoin is not only in its own bad situation, it's relative to the performance of the S&P and to gold is also very yeah, that, that's been one of the pillars of the bull case, right? That, that this was going to be kind of uncorrelated to traditional risk assets. That doesn't seem to be the case. And that's why I think it's kind of interesting that we hit that right after the Tesla here. And and again, the sentiment has been unusually bad of late. And I don't think it bottoms out at 28,000 with the sentiment still, you know, kind of like some people are just coming to the realization that this thing might not get back above, you know, 50,000 anytime soon. All right, Carter, you got to talk to us about this. You've been coming on Market Call, you've been coming on Fast Money, you've been saying it on Worth Charting that there was one unfilled gap in the S&P 500. Well, we filled it today. So what do we do now here, buddy? Because this thing, you know, this was one of the great charts that you used a few weeks ago on the inversion, you know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. we were like, oh, if this one was inverted, it looked like a, a beautiful breakout. But now it really looks like a nasty breakdown, a failure at that longstanding uptrend. And now we're just below all of those lows, right, from Feb. February and March. Tell us, where is the next level of support below 4,000? 
Yeah, I mean, the truth is, it's anybody's guess, and mine is lower. How much lower? I think you have to assume we're going to go into the mid 3,500s and ultimately even prospectively to the lower end of, of the 3,000s. We can look at some daily charts, but also I've got some long term charts that'll put it in perspective. But sometimes the lines do draw themselves. Look mm-hmm. at this there's a trend line, it bounces over and over and over. But key is after breaking, it throws back right to the underside of that trend line. Well, guess exactly what that also was? The 150 moving average. And it hits its head, strikes its head, and now is making new lows. And so could one say, yes, but I'm a short-term trader. I think we can get a bouncer. Okay, that's fine. But listen, when the Dow's going up a 1,000, down a 1,000 every day, for every guy that catches each zig and zag, there are 50 guys on the side of the wrecked, just bombed out. That's it. Hands cut off. I mean, blown up. It's too hard to do that. At least I think so. But let's keep drawing some lines. How about we look at the head and shoulders that everyone can see? How about we put them both together, trend line and head and shoulders? Okay. And so, yeah, short-term, I could say a bounce. We've seen bounces last week. But the real problem is, as of right now, we're lower than we were a year ago in every major index, so that no one has any gains for 12 months. And the more that goes on, the more damage is done, the more people start to say, I don't think I like this. I think I better uh, take some measures. I think I just want to stop doing this for now. And that's not good. Look at the long-term chart. We've got that here too. We are head and shoulders. That's really clear as a bell. And then finally, look at the all data from the 2009 low. I mean, those are mathematically parallel lines and we're right at the midpoint. Why do we have to stop at the midpoint? We don't. 4,000 is the midpoint. We touched it today. I think we undercut a bit. I agree with you, by the way. And one of the questions, uh, we have a question and what point, Guy, do you turn bullish is that 3750 level that I've been talking about seemingly forever. You have mentioned that level as well, Carter, months ago on Fast Money. And I think that's right. I mean, to me, 3750 lines up really well for a myriad of different reasons. We really haven't run from that all that much since the fall. And now as we approach it, you're starting to hear more and more choruses for it. So 3750 makes sense. And we'll see. I mean, this goes back 12, 13 years, this chart. And the lower end of this band probably comes in, to your point, somewhere between 3350 and 3500 mm-hmm. So first stop for me, 3750 Carter, and then we'll see what happens if and when we get there. Yeah, and I would just add one thing. I mean, Carter, I know you don't care about the fundamentals as you call them, but if the current consensus for S&P earnings this year is like 223 and Guy and I think that that's up 8% or so year over year, and we think that at best you have low single digits earnings growth, so maybe you have 210 or something like that, you slap a 17 multiple on that, and you get your 3750 Guy, Dami. I mean, that's one way to think about it, but to answer the individual's question, I mean, just because it goes there, you can move the goalpost too, buddy, because things could be deteriorating pretty quickly on a whole host of factors here. So listen, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to kind of do a little bit of a one for the road, Carter. You know, we were kind of doom and gloom on this thing. I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot to say. I think we're all in agreement that at any moment, could we have a rally, you know what I mean, off of a, you know, oversold sort of level with with sentiment really bad? Of course, but we will be sellers of rallies. There's not much in our opinions that's going to change, not even some vicious rallies here. But here's a couple stocks that caught my eye when I was looking at a bunch of charts this morning. Carter, take a look at the Pfizer. This is my chart. Mine's are not nearly as nice as yours. They are nice on fact set, though. What do you make of this thing here? Because this looks, you know, either fairly constructive holding that uptrend or it looks a bit toppy here because, you know, not able to kind of confirm that latest high that we had late last year. Just curious your thoughts on Pfizer, because this is one that I've played from the long side of the last couple of years. And I'm probably thinking about doing again. Well, just the, even as beautiful as the trend line is and, and, and is holding, it's the day-to-day action. Look at the chop there. Yeah. Chop is up in a market that's down. 
Yeah. That's what relative strength is. I like it. All right. Lastly, McDonald's, you know, staples have acted pretty well. Some people would make the argument that McDonald's is a consumer staple, especially in a recessionary sort of environment as some consumers trade down a little bit. This is a longer term chart. This is going back to the start of 2020. What's your take on this here? Because earlier this year, it had a really precipitous sell-off, but now it seems to be consolidating after a nice bounce and acting pretty well. You see where that support level is down there at those prior highs, 2020 and late, you know, a couple of times in 2020. Your quick take on McDonald's. Yeah, I mean, I would call it a pair of twos, but I'm with you in the sense it is a consumer staple. It is maybe the world's cafeteria, so to speak. You cannot produce cheaper food than that. Nowhere, not even in your own kitchen. You know, well, Guy Dami's kitchen. I'm listen. I, I'm a I'm a whiz in the kitchen. I'll tell you what. But it's not a pair of twos. This look at this slide that Amanda created for you. I mean, this is beautiful. It speaks to exactly what you're doing and worth charting. I mean, my ah, goodness gracious! Can you speak to this old-fashioned technical analysis? Nothing slick. I, that's I, right. I that's right. Nothing that. slick. No oscillators. Nothing but trying to figure out the way forward. Classic sense of. High, low, close, volume, where the key levels are. You do it better than anybody. I've said it for a while. You know, you're in the Parthenon in terms of technicians. You're right up there with the Louisiana Monitors of the world. But that's probably for a different show. That's it. We overtimed it, actually, two minutes. By the way, in case anybody cares, the Yankees are playing as we speak. We got Ranger hockey tonight. It's not a must win because they are not on the verge of elimination, but it's as close to a must win as you're going to get. I do like the Rangers tonight in Pittsburgh. 2-2 going back to the Garden on Wednesday. Thank you to our sponsors, Faxit, and, of course, Open Exchange. Dan and I will be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Hasta la vista, baby. 